Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hey folks, I am super excited to tell you a bit about today's new sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, MMC hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available. Spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com moods to learn more. Osiris. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media and made possible thanks to our Patreon community. To support the podcast directly, go to patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick. From Brooklyn, New York, this is Moods and Modes. I'm your host, Alex Skolnick. I'm probably best known as a professional guitarist. I'm also a writer, a photographer, and someone who occasionally gets told to keep his opinions to himself on Twitter. This podcast will involve music and guitar, but it may take us to some unexpected places as well. So, thank you for joining me, and let's do this. So in 2007, I first met Brian May at a book signing he was doing, and we became instant friends. I first saw a video of Queen when I was six, and that's what inspired me to play guitar, was seeing Brian. And he's inspired me so much so that I decided to build my own guitar from scratch with a friend of mine the same year that we met. That guitar, which I've lovingly named Two-Tone, is a hybrid of five different guitars that I had and loved, but wanted all the elements that I loved in one guitar. Since 2007, it's become my mission to make sure that this guitar plays, sounds, and feels as good as it can. And on that note, and those many fine notes you just heard, episode 15 of Moods and Modes begins. Hello, everybody. My name is Alex, and it's good to be back with you. Now, previously, we had a very special visitor, someone so popular in the 1970s that he's basically symbolic of the decade. Of course, I'm talking about our previous guest, Mr. Peter Frampton. Well, today we're going in the complete opposite direction with a guest who was not active in the 1970s. 
Neither was I, but in her case, she was not born in the 1970s. She was not born in the 1980s. In fact, she joined us on this planet early in the 1990s. But do not think for one second, my friend, that I am foisting some young upstart upon you who is void of experience and not quite ready for prime time. For in her limited time on this planet, she has been an artist to keep an eye on for the better part of it. Now, on the one hand, our guest, Ariel, has had a chameleon-like ability to enter genres and music scenes on a professional level, whether it's the rock and pop world of Hollywood, the country scene in Nashville, the blues rock scene in Austin, or elsewhere. Yet she's never been quite comfortable conforming to any one style. She comes to moods and modes at a perfect time, for she's hitting her stride musically with an upcoming album that captures her voice and guitar playing with new levels of songwriting, production, and sound, reflecting her experience and making her seem like she's been at it for decades longer than she has. All this would be enough to warrant a visit to our program, but did I mention she is a guitar builder as well as a guitar player? And you heard the clip in the beginning. The guitar that she's played for a little over a dozen years now is one that she built herself. A very unique design with a cool look and a memorable sound. One noteworthy and influential friend was so impressed with this guitar that he offered to do a mashup between that and his own guitar to be made commercially available. This friend is a respected academic and fixture in the scientific community with a PhD in astrophysics. In his spare time, he plays guitar and even has a band. It's called Queen. Maybe you've heard of it. Obviously, we're talking about Dr. Brian May, an incredible human being who needs no introduction. The first signature model Brian May guitar, besides Brian's own guitar, the Red Special, is the Ariel. You are going to want to hear about this guitar. Trust me. And in this episode, you will hear the guitar played by Ariel herself, as well as by Brian, and another friend, his name is Eric Johnson. But let's get back to Ariel's guitar playing. If my own seal of approval is not enough, you have Eric Johnson, you have Brian May, and another friend named Vince Gill, who picked Ariel as a top five guitarist in a contest sponsored by Guitar Center a number of years ago, in which she got to play alongside of him. The Ariel instrument will be more of the focus in the back half of this episode. The front half will focus more on her life, her experiences, and evolution as an artist. Which reminds me, after hearing all this, would you believe that Ariel was once a rebellious-looking rocker who could be found in the mosh pit at a Guar concert? I kid you not. You are in for a real treat. So without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to welcome to Moods and Modes, Ariel. Yay! Yeah, it's really good to talk to you. Same here. So are you, you're from Florida originally? Is that why you're in no, Florida? No, completely random, actually. Um, I mean, I moved to the UK because I wanted to be in the UK. So I was like, I got rid of my place. I was living mm -hmm. in Austin, and I, I lived in California. Are you from Austin? I'm not really from anywhere because my whole life, I've just decided that I'm not happy anywhere. So I just wander around. You're in the right career. Yeah. I was just like, well, Nashville seems cool. Oh, Austin's okay. And then LA is cool. So um, I, that's what I did. And then the UK. So I, I moved here. I've got some friends here. Um, some family got sick. So I, I was at least closer than, than being in the UK. But uh, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Thanks. Yeah. Re everyone's fine now, but it was just impossible being in the UK. So, um, so you say you're not really from anywhere. You grew up somewhere, right? Yeah, I uh, born in New Jersey and then moved to California. 
I was raised in uh, Northern California, uh, a little bit north of San Francisco, and then in between there in Maui. And then um, when I was 16, I moved to LA and I stayed there. And then when I was 18, I moved to London. And then I moved back to LA a couple years later. Then I moved to Nashville. Then I moved to Austin. Then I moved back to London. Then I moved to Florida. I have problems. I'm guessing you're not a hoarder. <laughs> no, I have a rule. I mean, not so much now because I, I own the house that I'm in, but um, I had a rule that anything that I owned had to fit in my Ford Transit Connect. I guess I, I'm guessing you've played in New York. Uh, multiple times. I was at, what is it? Joe's Pub. I went there uh-huh. just before Great the thing. lockdown happened. Yeah, it was great there. And then with um, on the EJ tour, we played BB Kings twice, but then I know it's it shut down. So EJ being Eric Johnson, yeah. And I had first met you when he was at the um, Joe Satriani uh, guitar mm-hmm. event thing. I'd first met him too. I'd never met him before. And this is Alex jumping in. The name of the event that escaped me at that exact moment is the Joe Satriani G4 Experience 2016 with Eric Johnson, Mike Keneally, Alex Golnick, and Steve Vai. Can you say humbling company to be in? Eric was passing through and set aside time around his New York show to join us out in Long Island at Satch's annual guitar retreat. I vividly remember doing a signing with Eric, which was a huge thrill, as I'm a big Eric Johnson fan, and then uh, having lunch together in the catering area. And that's where I was introduced to uh, his guest, who he was on tour with, his young support artist, Ariel. And I was sure this was the first time we met. Apparently, it's not. Yeah, it was it was a a, a cool kind of combo of of different guitar players there, uh-huh. and and you wouldn't actually remember this, but we met a long time prior to that. But it was like one of those weird situations that you'd never remember. <laughs> this is me again. I admit this caught me off guard. I had no idea we had met a long time ago. The reason she describes it that way is there were tons of people around. It was after a concert I'd played as the support act. So doing this night after night, yeah, you, it's so hard to remember everybody you meet. You're meeting people constantly. However, as she describes the situation, it does come back. I don't remember her specifically. I do remember the group of people that she was in. And uh, she was nothing like she is now. She had a very different appearance, which we'll talk about. I forget what happened, but you guys were doing something with uh, Heaven and Hell, Mm -hmm. with Testament, like 2007, maybe? No, 2008. 2008. Okay. That's what brought us back, in a way, because I had rejoined the band a couple years before that, and after mostly... Yeah, most of being in New York. And then that tour came along. It was Judas Priest, Heaven and Hell, and Motorhead. And suddenly, okay, we're back. We, we have to do an album. Even though you don't remember, and I barely remember, we actually met in 2008. So we met on that, on that tour. <laughs> I'm like one of those guys who like, remember me? I'm the guy in the in the red yeah. shirt from 1978. <laughs> you know that show? <laughs> God remember me. Yeah, that's me right now. That's pretty good. <laughs> I have those guys. No, I'm sure you do. <laughs> well, I didn't know you were into that 
outside of music, the, the heavy things. And uh, you saw the picture. That's when I found out. <laughs> I mean, that was yeah. <laughs> that was like just recently. You you did a I guess it was a throwback Thursday pick, and you you're wearing a Guar shirt, and you've got this wild guitar. Totally different look. It's I don't know if goth is the right word, but you're like this. <laughs> you know, it, you're, you're fitting. It's like fitting that you'd be, you know, wearing a guar shirt and playing that yeah. wild guitar. I, it, I ran into it by accident on a hard drive. I was like, oh, I mean, this was, has I thought it was awesome. Shared. Thanks. Yeah, but I looked like that when we met. Oh <laughs> wow! Oh god, that's amazing. I love that. That's that's evolution. <laughs> I think I was trying to match with the shoes. Not going to lie. Yeah. Oh, I'm all about <laughs> that. I don't know if you saw the wristband. I was wearing a Dio wristband. <laughs> oh, okay. Very cool. <laughs> yeah. Ray, may he rest in peace, Ronnie. Oh, so cool. He was so great. Wow. He was so great on that tour. He uh, remembered everybody's names always. Wow. Which is super easy to talk to, even though he was like this god on stage. And he was yeah. just at the top of his game. He just sounded, never sounded better. You know, um, it, it was, was crazy. I, you know, I, was, I had no idea that would be one, one of his last few tours. I mean, I think he he was around until a couple of years later, but uh, so he was so good on that tour. What a treat to watch him every night. He was, and the fact that they um, did that heaven and hell with you know with everybody from Black Sabbath was kind of like that was so cool. And I was talking to him backstage, and I I'll always remember I was like don't you have to go on in like five minutes? He's like, he's like, honey, I don't need to warm up. I was like, well, when do you warm up then? He's like, I warm up when I'm singing. I was like, I would never do that, but okay, go do it. And he sounded amazing. I don't understand. That's incredible. As a singer now, you probably really. Uh... Oh yeah. For what he, what he did, the way mm -hmm. that he used his voice and projected with his voice, especially at his age, it's, I mean, unmatched really. I don't, I can't think of anyone else who could probably pull that off. At his age. So you clearly liked Dio. Now, what about Guar? Did you ever see a Guar concert? Well, yeah. That's where I got the shirt. That was a rite of passage show to, okay. to see. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you really knew what it was all about. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You have to go and you have to make sure, you know, you wear like a black shirt. Or if you really want to go all the way, you wear a white shirt. And you can see because they spray all sorts of various liquids from the stage. <laughs> and that's like... <laughs> You gotta get as close to the I'm front. I'm so glad as I never toured with him. No, I you, no, I wouldn't have. <laughs> Thinking about it now, it sounds awful, but at the time, I thought that was so cool. And uh, I mean, I was at I was at all the metal concerts, and I was in the mosh pit. I was like, yeah, and I'm like five foot, right? So that didn't go well. I I broke my nose in the mosh pit, and I was like, all right, I'm retired. <laughs> it was a turning point in my life. <laughs> I think we, yeah, we all have to retire from the mosh pit at some point. Yeah, it's, it's a must. When you're my size, you're at elbow yeah. length of uh, elbow length. Elbow is where my face is. I was in mosh pits for early Metallica shows. Oh, wow. Yeah. And even, I think it might have been in a Slayer show as well. But <laughs> I wasn't brave. in a band yet. I was in high school. Once I joined my band at 16, I, I realized, okay, <laughs> no more mosh pet. Because <laughs> if, if I hurt myself, like a show could get canceled. Yeah. Yeah. Not worth it. Yeah. So, I, you know, I knew Dave Brocky as well. Oh, yeah. From Guar. 
I got to know him right around that time, too, because we were on some festivals with them. Yeah, just a, a super sweet person. And just a real artist. Just loved creating, like, absolutely yeah. offensive <laughs> art and oh, music. <laughs> it's funny how that works. So I would never guess. So just, it's funny, knowing you now, <laughs> who, who would guess that you had a Dio wristband and a Guar shirt and you were in the mosh pit? You know, because now you, uh, you're a singer, songwriter, serious guitarist. It seems like you've been doing what you're doing now your oh, whole life. Thank you. Uh, I wish I could say it was overnight, but I've been, I've been almost everything. So I did the metal thing. And then after I didn't feel like that was what I wanted to do, I was going to be the guitar player for like pop artists. So then I, I played with CeeLo Green. Did you really? That was super cool. Yeah, it was, thank you. It was, it was right after that. So I was still like 80s, kind of weird, puffy jacket, 80s thing. And then I became more like a prog rock chick. Then I was a country person. I, I went into every genre. Then I was super LA pop. I have the most embarrassing videos of me doing choreography with the guitar. Uh -huh. I mean, it sounds like Katy Perry meets weird guitar solos. And I had backup dancers, and then I did country music, like I said, which I moved to Nashville, and I was like, I'm going to do country. I, I, I tried everything, and eventually I was just like, I don't know why I keep experimenting. I think it's a lot of it's because of the guitar. I think mm -hmm. because I also play guitar, whatever I'm focusing on at the time is what I want to be. Mm -hmm. So I had my phases of of styles and and then it just led me to different places. And eventually I was just like, I can have my different styles. I don't always have to be that as an artist. Mm -hmm. And I want to be the most sustainable thing I think I can be, which is what I love the most, which tends to be music from the 60s and 70s. I love the tones from that time period for the guitar. I like the clothing. I like the uh, singer-songwriter, the bands, a lot of the classic rock bands. It, it was kind of like I started here and then I went, wee and then just ended up back at the same place. And I don't know why I had to go down that rabbit hole, but I did. A lot of people do. Yeah. It was a, a journey. It was a uh, Homeric <laughs> odyssey, I guess. Was it say. like that for you when you started moving out of the, the Testament thing and more into the jazz stuff? Did it feel like that for you too? Or was it just like another segment of what you already did? Yeah, you try different things, and um, there's expectations. I like you know, I like technical guitar players. You know, the more technical guitar players that were, you know, sort of influenced by Van Halen and Ozzy, and you know, some of the LA guys, you know, Rat and stuff like you know, great players. You're kind of expected to be in a, like a glam band. That's what was happening. The technical players joined glam bands. So, but I liked going to uh, thrash metal concerts. So at first it was sort of this mashup to have a guitarist like me in that type of band. But then once uh, we started recording and touring and getting some visibility, then I'm the thrash guy and I'm sort of classified as a thrash metal guitarist. And I, and I felt like I was still growing. And I just never understood this whole thing of not being aware of other music, not playing music with different types of musicians and not wanting to experience, you know, a world outside of the bubble of whatever scene you're in. 
And it took a while. It took a while to sort of figure out how to navigate that. I bet. I bet it's hard when, uh, when people see you a certain way and you're like, actually, I can do a lot more than that. I'd imagine it's pro- it was probably hard for you to get out of that because it's like, will people still listen to me if I go down that direction? Or Oh, yeah. And it, it was scandalous. <laughs> it was <Yeah>. like, <laughs> especially at that time, just to do music outside of that genre. And I'm going to cut that off because there's quite a bit of talk about me, 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 me. And there's no shortage of interviews with that same content. I may share some of the bonus footage at some point, but uh, this episode is about my great guest. So uh, let's listen to some of the music of Ariel. Her upcoming album is well-titled Analog Girl in a Digital World. And the first single is already out. It's called Peace of Mind. Let's hear a bit of it right now. props you for doing that because I, I know how, how hard that is on my own, you know, much less intense level. And, uh, it's hard because you kind of have to face not only will people potentially not like the fact that you changed, but also kind of risk maybe your well being financially, if it doesn't work out, you know, it's kind of one of those, those, uh, moments that you have to choose your what you actually want to do and like whatever works and uh major props because okay. that's that's uh really cool that you went where you wanted to go it must have been hard for you right because you're buying these different things that look like sure path music pop music with choreography and being in la and a, yeah what made you stop that well i got signed to a, a record label when I was in LA, I accidentally met Nuno Bencourt in my concept of time kind of sucks. I think it was 2010. He uh, got in touch with me and his mission was to get me a, a manager and a record deal. And he did both. Oh, wow. So cool. And uh, so I, so he helped me a lot and got me a record deal right after I was, um, I'd finished playing with CeeLo and I kind of wanted to do my own thing. So... He got me That's into really cool the world of, 
Thanks. Yeah. He's uh he's really good with that kind of stuff with developing kind of up and coming artists and stuff. And um so I got signed and uh I give him no credit for this as in a way that I picked who I wanted to have as management. He didn't do that. So I made mm-hmm. a poor choice. And I got mm-hmm. stuck in a really bad record deal. I was a, a horror story oh, in LA. And uh it was one of those that that you have to fight in court for years and cost lots of money oh, and no. end with terrible things. So what ended up happening was I was with the label and I started noticing kind of where they were prodding me. And while I was at the label, I was like, well, I could, I could kind of just start to go down the direction I, I actually want to go down and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And it actually went well. I did a whole EP that did really well on the radio, the the single that they're pushing, it was doing really well, but then they kept trying to get me to go down this like sexy rock shredder chick that I didn't, I didn't want to be that because I, because of what you're talking about with all the message boards and the, and the, the, the way that you can get easily pigeonholed, especially as a female guitar player, a young female, yeah. impossible to get out of. And I've always tried to be on the outskirts of that because I never wanted to be pigeonholed as that. Uh, so yeah, they didn't like that. So I had to leave the record label and I, and I mean, I was in court, they were trying to take my guitars from me and the, oh, and the design, which they had no rights over. And it was just this crazy situation where eventually, and I, it's like, it should be TMI, but I just don't care. Cause I, I like to get the point across that, like in order to get Not out of that all, situation, yeah. I had to mm-hmm. file bankruptcy. And uh-huh. so at that point I was like, I can either just not be me anymore and just create a whole other identity and not have Mm -hmm. to fight for my name and my music, or I can do this and actually do what I want to do. So it sounds like it was a similar crossroads to you where it was like, if I don't do this, I'm going to be, I'm I'm not going to be fulfilling whatever that is that I feel like I really want to do. So um, it took a few years of putting my life back together, but um in 2015, then I, I got free from that. I don't have to cater to what someone else thinks I should do, which is nice. So I can relate on my little world level. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of us go through things like that. Sorry you had to go through that. I never had to do the bankruptcy thing, but I went through issues with attorneys that, uh, you know, it got sticky. It's really hard to avoid. Like, I think you're right. I don't know if you've seen the documentary, the Tom Petty documentary. No. But while they were making "Damn the Torpedoes," Tom Petty was fighting his record deal, and so they were they were recording the the album, and then uh, the producer would take the tapes and hide them. So in case the record label came to take everything, no one knew where uh, they were. Uh, uh, I believe he had to file bankruptcy to get out, and he was already pretty established. Jimmy Iovine, that's that's who did it. Jimmy Iovine hit all the tapes wow. every night. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. Well, Prince had to do the same thing. I mean, he had to change his name to an unpronounceable symbol legally. It was so brilliant. Uh And he convinced, I remember it was a news story. Everybody thought he's crazy. He's lost his mind. And once he got out of that contract, it was like, oh my God, he's a genius. It was just so brilliant. The greater point being even the biggest Artists like Prince and Tom Hetty, 
have had to deal with these issues. It's so uh, such an ugly business at times. Yeah, it's crazy. And and you can hear about all, all the stories and be like, oh, that'll never happen to me. But unfortunately, it doesn't all look the same. And some people seem really trustworthy. And then that kind of stuff happens. It's It's hard to be set in a protected manner in every aspect of a career. And, and the worst part is, is that it's not just an agreement about an object or about a service. It's every aspect of it, even your own name. It's, it's crazy. I, I remember I was, I was in the bankruptcy court and they don't know how to deal with this stuff in, in the court, right? So they're like, can you explain to me how you got into $500,000 worth of debt? And I said, honestly, I don't know because I didn't spend the money. And they're like, what do you mean you didn't spend the money? I'm like, it's really complicated, but I had I had no control over that. Uh-huh. I mean, how do you explain that? Someone, someone is using your name and buying things without your approval. It just gets really deep and weird. And I guess in a way, all this technology has, I think it's a double-edged mm-hmm. sword really. It makes... People like, uh, you know, any artist that's up and coming trying to um, be heard, it makes it easier. I mean, you can, I don't need a label to, d- to put my music on iTunes anymore because before Spotify, it was very difficult to get on there and those kinds of things. Now we can kind of do it ourselves. But then I also feel so old because I just can't, first you need this and the Instagram and the Facebook and the YouTube and TikTok. And the, and I'm just like, I, at what point do you play the guitar? So it's, it's a very... Twitch. It's just, don't forget about things Twitch. Things have changed a lot too, so... I don't even know what that is. I don't know I can't, what that is. I can't do all these things. I, <laughs> I actually have a, a Twitch. I've never oh done gosh. anything with it. If anyone asks me about how I learned to play guitar, I always say I'm really grateful that when I was learning how to play guitar, that these mm-hmm. things didn't exist. I think there was MySpace, but I wasn't cool enough to have a MySpace. <laughs> and there uh-huh. was no YouTube. So I just listened to music over and over and over and over again and learned and, and went to school. And when I was writing music, I just wrote music because mm-hmm. I wanted to do it. And nowadays it feels like, okay, you have to have a 60 second mm-hmm. piece of content and then you have to do this weird TikTok thing mm-hmm. I don't even understand. And then and then you gotta do this. And it's it's hard because I think even the way that um these social media platforms are approaching music is less about a song. First it was an album. Right. Then it was a single. And now it's a 60 second snippet. And in in Twitch, or no, not Twitch. I don't even know what that is. In the other one, TikTok. <laughs> TikTok. See, really, I feel really old. Um, it's 15 seconds right. of, a, of a piece. But how do you, how do you, do you just not learn full songs? It's just what I want to know. I, I'm just very confused about it all. And this is Alex jumping in. If it's not clear already, the title of Ariel's new album, Analog Girl in a Digital World, is well chosen. And while she may be a little confused about some of the latest online digital platforms, one thing she is not confused about is guitar playing, as well as guitar building, which we'll get into after the break. Now, before the break, which we normally take at the approximate half-hour point, I'd like to play one more clip. Now, the previous clip highlighted Ariel's singing and songwriting, 
This one focuses on her tasteful lead guitar playing. It's from a few years back when she was a finalist in a Guitar Center-sponsored contest in Nashville. You can find this clip on YouTube in which she's playing alongside the great country superstar Vince Gill, himself a fine guitar player. The entire video is about nine minutes, so we're not going to hear the whole thing. But we'll hear the beginning in which Ariel speaks, and then we'll cut to a section at the end in which her soloing is featured. And I will see you on the other side. Hey, I'm Ariel. I came to LA from Nashville, Tennessee, and I actually found out about the Vince Gill competition through a fan that had boarded me something on Facebook. And I've never done a contest before, but I felt kind of called to do the Vince Gill competition because of who he is as an artist and not just a guitar player, like the whole picture of, of what he does. So that's all on this guitar that she built, which is going to be a big subject of the second half of the episode. But first, we need to take a quick break as mandated by the Moods and Modes podcast union, which consists of exactly one person. See if you can guess who that is. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. We've already got almost a full episode, and that's just talking about Ariel, the musician. Uh, we haven't even gotten to Ariel, the guitar builder, and uh, Ariel, the guitar. So I'm just going to announce that uh, I've had my second shot. It felt like being jet lagged. So I had a day of low energy, but I feel much better now. Everybody get your shots. And uh, there are going to be shows to announce soon. I'm pretty excited about it. I think there are going to be some dates around New York in July with an instrumental outfit to be announced soon. 
And it was a very big week in the news. There isn't time to get into it, but I've expressed thoughts on various social media pages. And I do want to give a quick um, tribute to a couple artists we lost this week. Rest in peace, Shock G, also known as Humpty Hump of Digital Underground, great rapper in Oakland, uh, used to rehearse at the same studio. And uh, Jim Steinman, who I worked with for a bit in 2006. I told this story online. Go to my Instagram page, at Alex Fulnick. But Jim Steinman is responsible for songs you know, like Total Eclipse of the Heart by Bonnie Tyler. It's All Coming Back to Me Now by Celine Dion. Pretty much the entire Meatloaf catalog and much more. Rest in peace, Jim. Now let's get back to Ariel. We were discussing learning guitar in the age of social media, which will follow up with a discussion on her guitar building. There's so many people that are doing stuff wrong. Yeah. If I was just learning how to play and falling into the habit of relying on YouTube and these online guitar videos, I agree with you. I don't think that would be helpful. I mean, between that and also the inundation of how many videos there are and how much content there is and all of them are different. It's confusing. Just like go to the, go to the source and get those, those bad, um, those eighties tapes that you learn how to play guitars. What were those called? Hot licks. Hot licks or something. I had a bunch of Did them. Did you have those? And they're hilarious. Oh yeah. Some of them are very funny. Yeah. Some of them, like there's a Brian May one and he's like in his prime and he's I was like, oh, cool. There's some, there's some cool stuff. But I think he, I remember his. It was with a yeah, lot of delay. It's really he, cool. He did a whole thing on like using delay. It was, it was cool. Well, since you brought him up, we should talk about him. How did you meet Brian? So I went to MI in, uh, as I mentioned, I, 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 in 2007 when I moved to uh, Hollywood. Uh-huh. And Brian May is the reason I picked up the guitar. He's a guitar god. Mm-hmm. Right, right off of Sunset Boulevard, there's a bookstore there, and he had just gotten his PhD in astrophysics. And yeah, such a genius. Oh, so, yeah, amazing. And had this crazy book about the theory of uh, evolution, and it's really, a really intense book. Um, <laughs> of course. And uh, I walked in with that crazy, ugly BC Rich of mine. I was like, this is my moment. And I talked to him. And uh, I, I was asking him all these questions. He's like, I can't really answer the questions right now. And I was sad. I was like, oh, my moment's gone. And then somebody behind me said, just hang around the store and maybe you'll come around. And he did. At the end of the, his interview, he actually came up to me and we started talking about guitar. And he's like, hey, play a little guitar for me. So with my electric guitar, I played like acoustically some, uh, I don't know what I played, like a Brandy Road solo. I don't know what I did. And he's like, wow, that's really great. And we, we connected on a, on a human level. Um, I was like, are, you know, how are you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm kind of sad. And, and we both kind of outwardly talk about uh, mental health stuff and how we struggle with depression and things. And so we kind of connected on, on a human level before anything. So he, uh, he was coming to LA a lot. And then he, I kind of grew up with his kids. He's got a couple kids that, that are uh, around my age and uh, connected me with them. And then um, he invited me to come to the UK to audition for his musical, We Will Rock You. So the next year, after sending him video after video of me playing Queen stuff, he's like, hey, you should, you should be in the musical. So I 
had never been to England and got on a plane at 18 and moved to England. And um, (laughs) so I got to do that and work with him. And the first time I ever played with him, uh, my guitar was plugged into his rig. I cried. Isn't that embarrassing? Oh, like, not at all. (laughs) I can't do it. Oh no. It's, oh, this is a theme that's happened in my life. Um, It's totally understandable. So, so yeah, Uh, now I just like pretend I'm fine, but. Even after all this time, I mean, we've known each other now. This is our 14th year of being friends. Um, wow. Now we just jam and everything, but I, it, it never kind of goes away that he's still Brian May, you know? Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I would tour the UK all the time. And then uh, after I moved back to the US, the first time I moved in 2008, we uh, stayed in touch. We talk a few times a week. And we had some songs that we'd worked on that we'd never finished or just didn't release. And then um, I decided I was going to do this guitar thing. Because of him, I made my own guitar um, right around that time That's period. amazing. In, in, and you have to go into some detail about that because that, that's incredible. It never occurred to me to build a guitar. You know what I mean? It's, uh, I, I can change my strings. That's about it. Yeah. To me, like, just to make a truss rod adjustment. Like I have to have friends hold my hand, you know? (laughs) You gotta have like one dinky guitar, like buy one of those kits online for like 120 bucks and just use it to just ruin the fear that you have of hurting one of your actually, you know, expensive nice and prized guitars that's what i did i bought some kit guitar that i could stain and put together and screw up and not feel bad about that's what i do that's a good way to do it yeah you can buy a kit for 120 bucks or get a you can get a used guitar too but it's not as fun because then you i guess you could take it apart but there's something cool about putting it together that uh, makes you less afraid to ruin something nice yeah i think uh when eddie van halen built his guitar there were these cheap imitation Stratocasters on the market at the time. And yeah, he, he destroyed a few of those. So you have to be able to destroy the stuff, you know, just to, to get to the point where you know what you're doing. Exactly. If you don't have a teacher there saying, oh, don't do that, do this. And even then you'll probably screw something up. I know I did. So it's a, it's a good way to, to not be as scared. Be like, oh, I've already ruined that. I know not to do that and have it not be some one of your vintage 335s right. or something. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> I would never. <laughs> Did you have a teacher helping you or was this all oh, just yeah. following the directions and the kit? That's how I started. And then I had, I found this random guy. I was going to the Uli John Roth Sky Academy. and Oh, cool. I know Uli. I've known him for a long time too. He's such a cool guy. We talked yesterday. He's going to be on the podcast. Is he? Yes. Oh. Yeah. Tell him that I'm on here. Tell him I say hi. Hi. We talk all the time about spiritual concepts and the and the energetic colors of the of different keys. A is red. That's kind of what he wants to talk I about. I bet he does. And I'm going to jump in and explain who we're talking about for those who don't know. Uli John Roth was the original guitarist for the Scorpions in the 70s, long before 
their big hits like Blackout and uh, Love at First Thing and especially Winds of Change. A good case can be made for him being the most innovative guitarist of the Scorpions. I was a massive fan growing up, and it's been a thrill to get to know him in adulthood, and I'm looking forward to having him on the podcast. It's impressive that someone of Ariel's generation is so aware of him because he's not known the way Brian May is. Everybody who watched the Oscars a couple years ago knows who Brian is. Yet Uli, despite not being in the mainstream, has maintained a cult following, continued his solo career, and started the Sky Academy for some of his teachings. And now that I think about it, it would be so interesting to hear a conversation between Uli John Roth and Brian May. Brian's a card-carrying member of the scientific community, peer-reviewed by the type of folks that work at MIT, Jet Propulsion Lab, Caltech. Uli, meanwhile, is more of a counterculturish figure with what some might describe as an alternative belief system. In 2006, he started, I, I, don't, I don't know how long it went for, I think five years, and he was doing a summer camp for, I think it was four or five days, and you go and then he does basically what, what you guys will be having a podcast about. I'd imagine it's... It's more the um, kind of metaphysical approach to the guitar. And you know, every, a lot of people came because they're just such big fans of his. And so he teaches that kind of stuff, and it's really cool. He was a, a really cool mentor to me. He told me, you were an absolute mess. You were a wreck. I had the worst anxiety. And I would just shake, and I couldn't talk to anyone without my sunglasses. And and he he's like, "You, I didn't know what to do with you. I'm like, but yeah, he was... He helped me a lot with my anxiety that I had playing. But um, he has a really unique guitar, as you know, the uh, Sky guitar. Yeah, with so many frets. Oh my gosh, so many frets. It's And then it's whole tone too, as it goes up. And he's got like a 28 fret and a 32 fret and they're uh, spaced whole tone, which is super cool. But but he has these guys that try to recreate his guitar. And it's really funny because they're not very good, but it's just a really sweet sentiment. Like, look, Uli, I made a <laughs> really bad replica of your guitar. Um, and there was a guy there and I was like, hey, would you make me a guitar? And he's like, yeah. Sure. So he and I, we put together some specs that I had. I had, it was, it was annoying because I was going to MI, as I said, and I'd have to walk about a mile to go to school. So I could only bring one guitar. I was like, all right, which one am I going to bring today? I had, I had, I think, uh, four guitars and I liked the ebony fingerboard from the Les Paul. And I liked the color. It was a Manhattan midnight blue one with a really cool white binding, and but it was really heavy. And then I had that funny BC Rich, which I love the reverse headstock and the scale length is a 25 and a half inch scale length. And then I had the Brian May guitar, which was, of course, it had the pickup selectors in it and the Burns Trisonic pickups, but uh, it was a signature guitar or, you know, it was Brian's guitar. I want to have my own kind of identity. And then I had a, a Strat that I kind of set up like a Jeff Beck kind of floating Fender two-point bridge thing with the volume knobs kind of close to where my hands were. So I pieced together a bunch of things that I liked about different guitars. And uh, I love the way the Firebird looks, but I, I've never owned one. But I, there were certain things that I wanted to change about it. So it took about a year. 
And he had a friend, this guy, Patrick, he had a friend that worked with Jackson. And so they let us use some of their equipment. And my guitar is not a professionally made guitar. When you pick it up, it, it has a vibe, but it is definitely an amateur guitar. So when the, what ended up happening was I hated it. I hated it so much to the point where I just kept it in a closet for a while. And I was like, well, I spent what money I had was just like $580. I think it cost me to make. And I was like, well, I may as well do something with it. And then the guy who, and then I have this funny story too, the guy who built it with me disappeared. So since 2007, I haven't been able to find him. So he just vanished mysteriously. Yeah. No one can find him. Uli doesn't know where he is. Nobody from the Sky Academy knows. It's very odd. And he's been missing since then. So there's also that funny story around it. It's right out of a book. So um, I have 10 different versions of my guitar from that have changed the types of wood to the color to the scale length, the neck shape. I've changed every aspect of it, trying to figure out how to make it better. So when I was on the road with Eric Johnson, every night someone would say, hey, your guitar sounds really great. Where do I get one? I was like, uh, nowhere, because they're not, they're just me, really. Yeah, you made it, yeah. Yeah, and I have I have different versions of it, different colors, and uh, people really liked my little tobacco burst one that I have, and... I was like, well, I should, I should offer these guitars. It's kind of selfish for, for me to be the only person that has one. So I decided about three and a half years ago, I was going to make some with my friend. So I was going to hire my luthier friend in Nashville, and we were going to make maybe one or two a month, maybe charge like five grand for them, and that would be it. And um, I was touring the U.K., um, about three years ago, and I and I was catching up with with um, Brian May during lunch, and he he's like, "Hey, what's going on?" I was like, "Well, I'm making these guitars, or I haven't started yet, but I'm I'm going to make some guitars." And he said, "Well, what company's doing it?" I was like, "Oh no, there's no company. It's just me." And he's like, "Well, why doesn't Brian May, May guitars do it?" And then of course wow. I had to like play it really cool, like I wasn't freaking out inside, yeah. but I was like, "Oh my gosh!" <laughs> I was like. <laughs> Outwardly, I was like, oh, really? Yeah. It's like, like okay, I'm going to have to have a talk with myself okay. about that and think it over. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that, Brian. This yeah. is just a little... So at that table, he's like, what scale length do you want it to be? And I was like, well, mine's kind of a Fender scale length. You know, it's not quite 25 and a half, but he's uh-huh. like, I think it should be 24. I was like, 24? Why would it be 24? Yeah. Why did he think that? Well, my guitar is 24 and it sounds okay. I'm like... 24 it is. <laughs> like, no, I'm not fighting that one. Yeah, that's amazing. That's You know what? That's perfect. And it's his um, His 24 sounds really good. Not much better selling point than that right now. Exactly. So so we took the 24 scale length, and the guitar is um, it's a combination of his guitar and my guitar. It is not a replica of mine, um, and it's certainly not of his either. So it was kind of him. He literally took so my guitar cool. and he was like, all right, I like this and this mm-hmm. and this, and I don't like that and that. And uh, we had arguments. He he didn't know why I wanted to change the mm-hmm. the wood. And he's like, he's like, you need to convince me that the wood is, is going to make a big difference on the tone. I was like, Brian, you have to understand something. You have to, we're like at a table, at a round table. It was very entertaining <laughs> to be having <laughs> arguments with Brian May about wood. Types. I mean, very loving arguments, but uh, 
it was really fun. this little beauty this is the Ariel finally I have one in my hands and finally I have a moment to play it and this is the new guitar from Brian May Guitars based on the original design by my dear friend Ariel who uh, will be demonstrating it and I will also be demonstrating it in the weeks to come so you'll be seeing quite a lot more but ain't she a beauty I'll be showing what uh, she can do and so will Ariel, and we'll be launching properly pretty soon now. If you want details right now, please go to my Slink in the bio, up there somewhere, and you'll see Brian May Guitars there, and you can see some pictures and um, a little bit more information. So I'll sign off, but meanwhile, the Ariel guitar is awaiting your pleasure. <laughs> perfectly in tune take care folks <laughs> i think it actually is in tune he's just got the tremolo bar halfway compressed thank you brian what wood type is it what, what wood type did you have and what wood type did he suggest so the body of my guitar is is uh black limba or or carina but usually carina i guess is kind of referring to the white limba it's the same tree but it's got that black uh wood grain in it so I use use Limba. I, it's pretty wood. I had a Karina guitar once. Yeah, so his is mahogany, and then his original, of course, has the oak neck, um, but his Brian May guitars is, are mahogany with a mahogany neck and an ebony fingerboard. Mm -hmm. We made a compromise, and we have... Traditional woods. Very traditional. Um, so we made a compromise where we have the the white limba or the Karina body and they have the it has a mahogany set neck uh, my original guitar is actually neck through that's where we where we made uh, a little bit of a compromise and it has a, an ebony fingerboard as well and i'm pressing pause to offer a quick thought just in case anyone is not convinced so far by her music and overall outlook that there lies an old soul within this young woman Take a listen to this next section in which she demonstrates great awareness of the responsibility of being a guitar builder as it pertains to sustainability and the environment. And then what's even, well, it's not more exciting, but um, I've also become a massive hippie and I've created a nonprofit called, this is the first of its kind, called the Tonewood Forest that I'm actually replanting from seeds, uh, tonewood trees. So I've got ebony, 
uh, East Indian rosewood, mahogany, ash, alder, um, wow. all sorts of different types. Koa. Um, Koa. I'm doing now is I'm going to be replanting these trees for edu- educational purposes. That's so cool. Alongside the guitars to try to make up for my guilt. Where are they being planted? That's wonderful. Well, it's starting in it's starting here in Florida right now. They're on my um, acre. I have an acre property, and I'm buying up some empty lands, plots of land, and um, I'm actually looking at some uh, plots of land in the UK to do some of the colder woods like spruce and and maple and those kinds of things, birch, that I can start to have them in their own climates and then try to expand this into different areas. So. I think it's good. It's, I mean, before I started doing this, I didn't know, I didn't know what a mahogany tree even looked like or uh, any of the guitars that I play, or I didn't even know how hard it is to get a, a tree grown. So it's given me a big respect for it. And I'd like it to be a cool legacy I can leave behind, have all these trees. Ebony, I'd like to eventually cancel out the ebony on my, um, on my guitars, even though it's my favorite for a fingerboard, it takes 60 to 80 years to mature. Is that an endangered wood? Highly endangered. In fact, almost all the woods that we use, short of a couple, um, are endangered. Um, rosewood, of course, the Brazilian and um, East Indian. Ebony is extremely endangered. Yeah, so I'm adding them back extremely slowly, but uh, that's been my other mission too. That's so, it's really great you're doing that. Thanks. My whole mission with this album was to try to figure out what about the time period of the 60s and 70s made it so special. Was it the way that that it was recorded? Was it the gear? Of of course it was the songwriting and the musicianship, but how do you replicate that sound in current times? How do you do it? So I used what I thought were the similarities, like no click, 
so everything free. And then we recorded everything in one take. And then I, I hired um, uh, another guitar player to do the overdubs. So I could just barely add any after the fact. And then we used, you know, all, um, all uh, vintage equipment. And then I, I recorded a tape and then I recorded analog uh, digitally with uh, with a console, an analog console and some outboard gear. But um, it's kind of interesting to compare those. That was my whole experiment to see which which one in, sounded more analog with, with that approach in mind and those recording techniques and not using any of the technology that we have as a crutch. Had you done this before? Had you ever worked with this type of equipment or was this the first time? I had before. But um, I'd never recorded completely live. Um, it may be short of one time for a demo. Um, I use the equipment, but a lot of times it'd be the like more of the bass and drums live first, and then I would add stuff on, or I'd build off of demos. I never took it so seriously, where I'm actually singing and playing guitar at the same time and keeping what I have, which is terrifying. So I've never done it to this degree, and I've... I've also never recorded a tape. That was my first time. I mean, I have a four track uh, that I've recorded myself with, but not not an entire band. Good for you. Thanks. How how about you? Do you? Uh... Yeah, I um, emerged into the music world just as that stuff was being phased out. Mm-hmm. It's like just before 1990, all the records are being transferred to CDs. Things are starting to be recorded digitally, but you still don't have um, Pro Tools or programs like that. So the very first record I made with uh, with Testament when I was 18, um, and I think the next two as well, those were done to tape, two-inch Studer cool. uh, tape decks. Yeah, and it was very intimidating, right? Because it's like this giant... Like a, it's like a giant copy machine, right? Yes. Except it's got this huge tape head on the top. And um, yeah, it's, it's intimidating, right? Because the tape is giant. And if the occasional edit on a big tape like that is incredible, right? It's this yeah. strange process of like finding the right spot. Splicing like, it, taping it together. Yeah, taking a razor blade. I remember watching our engineers do stuff like that, and it was like surgery. You yeah. Know? And the same stuff we do now on our laptops with copy-paste. Isn't that crazy? You can, of course, think about how that would affect the timelessness of, of an album because I think in in some ways there's... I mean, you can you can use digital equipment and technology and, and use it with that approach uh. in mind where... Instead of maybe copying and pasting all the choruses, you're like, yeah, I'll just play through them. That's okay. You know, add a little bit of a, a, a unique flair to each one. But I think um, our technology has also made it easier to be lazy as well. So that's really cool that you got to experience that because I, I hadn't. And it's very intimidating. Yeah, I'll bet. Um, and expensive too. Yeah, yeah. That was one advantage of the digital revolution. Not having to buy tape and but so did you really notice a difference? Is I guess it's like comparing like photography. I do some photography and photographer friends who shoot on film. Yeah, you can't compare it. 
And also what you're creating is affected because you know you don't have like infinite tries ahead the way you do with digital, right? The fact that it's limited, right? <laughs> there's only so many tracks. There's only so much tape. You know, that's going to amplify your performance. Exactly. I definitely hear a difference. And it's interesting because on the same album, I have... I have them. Uh, I should. I'll send it to you, Please. so you can you can hear what I mean. And I'll be curious to know if you can tell the difference. I'm sure you will. Yeah, I can sonically hear a difference, and I'll be completely honest with you. I'm not sure I preferred the analog, and it could have just been the song choices. I I, I purposely ch- chose the songs I wanted to do in analog, mm-hmm. uh, thinking that they would sound better in analog. And I think, in some ways, I was right. But with what I had, I think. I'm not, I don't, I don't want to just say it's analog in general. Cause I really like if I'm just doing acoustic stuff, uh-huh. um, and just do like two tracks. Um, I, I think I prefer that acoustically, but, um, yeah, I could hear a difference. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I loved it. I think I, I think I prefer digital and then using a console and more outboard gear and, and a more organic approach in that way. But there, there are some really cool things about about the tape too. So yeah, it's, it's hard to compare, but, but, uh, you mentioned the photography, even the photography I have for the, for the album was shot on a uh, film camera and the cover, I actually cut up two inch tape. Like I felt bad when I was doing it, but I, and then I scanned it. It was analog for a sec. It sounds very artistic to me. I tried. And I'm here again to remind you that Ariel's adventurous new album has a fitting title, Analog Girl in a Digital World. May 7th is the official release date, and the track you heard just before that segment, wasn't that nice, is called Inside and Outside, and that's available now as an advanced single. So even though she's a self-described analog girl, she does have an active Instagram page at Official Ariel with links to her singles, all her other music, merchandise, instruments, etc. So speaking of instruments, let's get back to the Ariel guitar. And here's a little clip of a friend playing it. The friend is Eric Johnson, and this clip can be found on the Brian May Guitars website. Also, side note, I I have a guitar that they're going to send to you, but they don't get them in, and I think April. I'll make sure you get a guitar, too. Oh, I am excited. I need your guitar. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's definitely different than the the amazing... um, collection you have there it'll it'll be a unique part of your collection (laughs) i'm so stoked you heard that right folks a sample of the aerial collection by brian may guitars is slated for arrival in an ideal world i would have the guitar now and be able to put it through its paces as part of the episode However, as I talk to you, it's still April and the company is replenishing their stock and then it has to be shipped and the way things are in the UK and the US Postal Service 
Don't even get me started. This is a little slow, so it may take some time, but it's going to be a great segment on a future episode. And in the meantime, Ariel and uh, Dr. May, if you're listening, there is a very nice corner here at Moods and Modes headquarters awaiting the arrival of the Ariel. Those pickups look really cool. They look very different. So Brian actually built these. They're called Trisonics. I mean, he didn't, obviously these are built off of what he made, but they are. What he made, but he made, built them originally. He made them originally. And so they're wired in series instead of parallel. So uh-huh. they actually stack on each other. So the more pickups you have, the louder it gets. And then they have the ability with the pickup selectors to be reversed and then they can be played out of phase, which is how Brian gets that uh, Bohemian Rhapsody kind of sound. So they're very unique. That's such a unique tone he's got there. Yeah. Yeah, and when you when you play this, you'll be able to get the, those those tones. He oh. takes the bridge pickup and the neck pickup out of phase, and you'll immediately get that like harmonic, squeaky kind of hollow, quacky tone. It sounds like a quack kind of. <laughs> so that's the, those are the. I mean, quack tone. It's a quack tone, but once you have that, you have all the different variations of being able to be in phase and out of phase. They're they're really cool pickups that I think are kind of in between a single coil and um, a humbucker. No matter how much gain you're using, they they retain um, a really clean quality to them. Mm-hmm. I really like them a lot, so I'm curious to know what you'll what you'll think about them. Yeah, I'm excited because I mostly play humbuckers. Uh, I do have a coil tap on my guitar, so it gives it a little bit of a, a strat tone. Oh, cool. And I'm jumping in here. At this point, I hadn't realized that her guitar has all these switches for cool tone options. The reason is we're on Zoom, and I hadn't seen the guitar close up. At one point, she holds it close up, and I have this eureka moment. So that's coming up right here, and she explains the technology behind it, which I think you'll find really interesting. How many um, switches on it? Like how many, um, sorry, switch positions? Oh, there's about, um, I guess there'd be about 30. So you can see here, there's what? There's there's six switches, but what you can do is you can wait, have- What do you mean 30? You could have 30 different variations, almost. Oh, wait a second. I, so I think I didn't get it before. So, <laughs> so you're, te- you're telling me that- So the, here, hold on, let me see. I wish it would show wait, you wait, here. Bring it down oh, a little go. bit. Oh, so you have, these are on the pickups. Yeah, did, okay. you, did you see it? Yeah, I'm... I'll, I'll, show you, I'll show you a picture. I have been enlightened just now. Did, I could did not, it make sense? I, <laughs> yes, I could not see from a distance and through the screen that gotcha. there's a switch plate on your guitar with multiple, multiple switches. Yeah, so here... So it's um, not like, maybe I, have one I thought you were going to answer, you know, like either a Les Paul has three, a uh, Strat has five. Oh, yeah. No. But this is next level switches. I see now. Yeah. So the top one turns on the pickups. Yeah. And the bottom one yeah. turns them out of phase. So you can, and that's what I mean oh, that they're wow. wired in series. So they all work together. You don't switch between, I mean, yeah, you don't switch between them. You just stack them on. But depending on which one you reverse the phase on, it switches the tone. So you get a ton of different options with this guitar. A lot of them you'll probably never use, but um, it's very cool. Very um, old school sounds as well. I love that, though. Thank you. Like any technology, I mean, there's 
things in Logic Pro X that I will never use. Mm-hmm. There are things in my Mac <laughs> I, I will never use. <laughs> there are, exactly. Or even my, my phone. But the fact that you know it's all there and there are so many possibilities and options is really cool. Definitely going to run through and check them out. It's, it's great. I didn't realize there was like, so much to explore. Yeah. And, and I mean, I've been playing these pickups now pretty much exclusively for a good 13 years now. And I, to this day, I still find unique things about the guitar. Like, you have a really cool sound. Thank you. Yeah. I do notice you know, your, your tone is unique and it's, it really cuts through. And it sounds very distinct going from whether you're playing chords or whether you're playing leads or melodic lines. Well, thanks. I can. Um, I think people's ears aren't used to hearing these pickups except with Brian. He sent me a track, a demo that he's working on for somebody, and he was like, "What do you think about the solo?" And I was like, "Oh, you're you're using the neck and the bridge pickup out of phase." I can tell. He's like, "You're the only person that would know that." We're kind of like the only two weirdo. Well, wow. I just ripped off Brian's idea, which is w- what it is. But I think <laughs> our ears aren't used to hearing those guitars, so I've somehow kind of created my own little world. But I think when you pick up the guitar, you'll—it's hard not to um, not to go there with it. It's really cool. It's very gentle and sweet the way that the pickups are. Yeah, yeah. When he explains it. It's really cool because his dad was the kind of the engineer behind everything, and they they created this this unique pickup arrangement. Oh, so his so Brian's dad helped engineer that system. Yeah, oh. yeah, and I'm not sure why other people haven't ripped it off, but uh, other than me, we'll see see what you can do with it. I'll I'll give you my favorite arrangement. I I took the wiring and I flipped it upside down, so it's the same thing, but it's easier for me to understand. It's so cool that you're kind of taking what he did, but you're taking it to new places. And I'm sure he really appreciates that because, you know, as larger than life and worldwide as he is and Queen is, you know, he's he's just one person. And to have, you know, a new artist sort of taking that side, the electronics, which is kind of this obscure side to what he does and reconfiguring it and creating new art with it, I'm sure is just a very cool thing. For him. I hope so. And um, I actually told him and the Brian May people that you were going to try it because I, I was I was excited because like he's, you know, he's, he's got all sorts of different approaches. He's got like, I mean, he can do like a lot of the metal stuff, but also he's got the jazz approach. He, he's going to really appreciate the guitar or not. He's going to know what, what it's capable of doing because he can p- put it through the paces. I'm stoked. I will definitely put it through the paces. Yes, yeah. please. And as I chime in one final time, this was the moment where I looked at the clock and I realized we'd been going a couple of hours that just flew by. So we started wrapping things up. In case you're wondering, yes, I was already thrilled with the uh, imminent arrival of a Brian May Guitars aerial. But the fact that Brian himself is aware of this and on board with that, well, as if my day wasn't made enough already. Really great talking to you. Talk soon. Thank you so much, Alex. All right. We'll talk soon. My best to Mr. May. Oh, will do. Bye. And that's it for episode 15. Wasn't that fun? I know for many of you, Ariel is an artist you might not have been familiar with, so it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to her. 
This episode flew by, even though it's almost double the average length. It was like having two guests, one a luthier and one a musical artist. Analog Girl in a Digital World comes out May 7th. You can find all her information at Official Ariel on Instagram and elsewhere. And for information on the Ariel guitar, go to Brian May Guitars online. I can't wait to get mine. A big thank you to our guest, Ariel, someone who has not been around as long as some of us, but we can take inspiration from nonetheless. Somebody who has been around a bit longer, an indirect part of this episode, Dr. Brian May. Thank you. Thank you for everything you do and just being you. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media, hosted and produced by yours truly, Alex Skolnick. Osiris production by Kirsten Cluthy and Brad Stratton. Final editing and mixing by Brad Stratton. Music by Alex Skolnick, including the song you're hearing now, which includes Matt Zabrowski on drums and Nathan Peck on bass. Extra special thanks to all the Patreon members who make this possible. And you can join us at patreon.com slash alexskolnick. Or support the podcast by just subscribing and giving us a review. That's it for episode 15. Thank you. See you on the next episode. Osiris. Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about the April-May 2023 issue of Relics Magazine. Features a Dave Matthews Band cover story with additional articles and interviews with The National, Graham Nash, Wayne Shorter, ALO, Ivan Neville, our friend Eric Krasno and Stanton Moore, Marty Stewart, and much more. Check out the latest version of Relics and subscribe now at relics.com slash DMB. Thanks, Relics. Hey nerds, I'm Sarah, the Paper Nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, The Paper Fold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network.